Keep your Bible open to Luke chapter 7. That will be the passage that we'll be looking at today, and we'll be reading through that together in a very short while. But before that, uh, I need God's help, and I know that you need God's help too, so let me pray. Our Father in heaven, just as we have sung, we pray now that you would please make your word, our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern, all for the sake of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we'll be studying Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 1 to verse 10 today. Just 10 verses that we're going to kick off uh, the new series that we're having. But let me first give you a bit of introduction to this gospel. The opening verses of the gospel that was read to us earlier in chapter 1, verse 1, to verse 4, makes it very clear to us why Luke wrote what he wrote. We see from these verses that Luke has carefully researched everything concerning Jesus Christ. And he sets out to write an orderly account of how and what God has accomplished amongst us in Jesus Christ. What God has accomplished, his plans and his purposes in and through Jesus and Luke was writing this down in two big volumes, actually, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And he wrote it for a man called Trophilus. But why did he write it? Well, he said that he wrote it to help Trophilus to be sure that is to be confident of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. That is his aim, his end goal, is that Trophilus become confident of what God has done in Jesus. And we would benefit from that ourselves as we read through it. And so far in the last six chapters, uh, these are the main concerns that Luke has brought up. Let me bring it to you. Firstly, Luke wants Trophilus to be very clear who Jesus is. And by the way, for those of you who are following outline, uh, you can find it uh, in the bulletin that is there with you. On the left is the outline of the talk, and on the right will be the actual text that I'll be going through with you. So the, main con the first main concern, let me repeat that, is that Luke wants Jophilus to be clear who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God. All the way from Jesus' birth to his baptism to the temptation that he had in the desert, Luke stressed this point repeatedly that Jesus is God's Son. Secondly, Luke wants Jophilus to be clear what Jesus came to do. Jesus came in fulfillment of what God has promised to his people. He came to rescue people from sins and the consequences of sin. He came to rescue people from their enemies, the devil. And so far in this book, we have seen Jesus teaching and calling sinners to repentance. That's what he came to do, calling sinners to repentance. And thirdly, Luke wants Jophilus to be crystal clear how one should respond to this man, Jesus. So far, some were amazed at Jesus' authority and his teaching, and others were hostile towards him. And these include some of the religious Jewish leaders. Now, this morning, our focus will be on Luke 7, verse 1 to 10, and this is a fairly short episode, and it concerns a Roman centurion. You haven't read it, and I haven't read it today. I've read it in the past week. So let's go through it together verse by verse now. 
All right, you have your Bible opened. Let's take a look. Luke, one, uh, Luke 7, verse 1. Help each other to find the pages if you can't find it. Verse 1 says, After he, that is Jesus, had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Well, the opening verse reminds us, or is meant to remind us, that Jesus has been speaking on the plain near Capernaum. And we have seen that uh, in chapter 6. If you have been with us in April, we have done that. In fact, this is not the first time that we cover Luke. We started it three years ago. And we have been doing it in chunks. And now we are in chapter 7. So in chapter 6, we have seen Jesus teaching and speaking uh, on the plain near Capernaum. He has been proclaiming to people concerning the kingdom of God and teaching them what it means to be following him. A great crowd of his followers and many people from all over places have been coming to listen to Jesus, and many have come seeking to be healed of the diseases. Now, after Jesus finished his teaching session on the plane, he now entered the city, and that is where our episode today takes place, in the city of Capernaum. As we enter the city with Jesus, the question at the back of our mind should be, well, many people have been listening to Jesus, many have witnessed his power, many have been healed. But how will they respond to him? How will they respond to him? And how will they treat this man who has been teaching them and healing them? So let's read on. Verse 2, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. We are immediately introduced to the main character of the whole episode that is the centurion. A centurion is a Roman army commander. A decurion looks after 10 soldiers. A chilak looks after 1,000. And a centurion is ranked between the two. How many do you think he looks after? 100. Okay. I skipped the national service in Singapore, otherwise I would be able to tell you what's the equivalent of a centurion today. But it's more or less like an army commander. All right? Anyway, this high powerful, high ranking official has a serious predicament in hand at the moment. He has a dear servant, and his life is now hanging by the threat. He is very, very sick. And many of us can probably identify with the centurion how desperate and how helpless it is when we are confronted with sickness and with death. It is extremely discouraging and despairing to know that there is basically nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do when someone is faced with death. The centurion is stuck completely. But something happened. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, like many in the region, the centurion has heard about Jesus. And his immediate response was to ask Jesus for help. The centurion is a Gentile, a non-Jew. So instead of approaching Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, personally, he decided to send his Jewish civil leaders to Jesus instead. And then verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this to him, do this for him. For he loves our nation, 
and he's the one who built, for, built us our synagogue. The first statement that they made was, the centurion is worthy. From their point of view, Jesus should, if not Jesus must, help the centurion. Why? Well, he deserved it. Why does he deserve it? Well, they say he loved the Jews. And he even built a synagogue for the Jews. So they appeal on the basis of that. Although this man is a Gentile, not a Jew, he has done favorably towards the Jew, and that makes him worthy to benefit from the Messiah's power. And how did Jesus respond? Verse 6, Jesus went with them. Jesus went with them. Well, at this point as a reader, or at least for me as a reader, you, should, you would have thought that the story is over, isn't it? Another serious human predicament resolved by Jesus. Again, Jesus comes in and heals a sick man, just as he has always done in the past. He rebuilt the fever, he cured the leper, he healed the paralytic, we have seen it in Luke. And voila, now he demonstrates again that he has God's given power. The end. But that's not the end of the story. The incident takes a turn to tell us something more. There is an interruption from the centurion. Let's read on, verse 6. Then Jesus was, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, a few things to know about the centurion's interruptions. Firstly, he regards himself unworthy. He has a high regard for Jesus. He calls him Lord. He feels unworthy to have Jesus step into his house. This is a striking contrast, don't you think, compared to what the centurions, the Jewish leaders, their friends, view of him. They were confident that he's worthy. They appealed to Jesus on the basis of his worthiness. He, on the other hand, does not presume himself fit to meet Jesus at all. He counts himself undeserving, unworthy to have Jesus under his roof. Secondly, this centurion has a profound insight to Jesus' authority. To a certain extent, he identifies himself as one with authority, as an army commander. He draws a parallel between his authority over his soldiers and Jesus' authority over sickness and death. In verse 8, he says, I too am a man set under authority. So I think he recognizes that Jesus has access to God and given great authority by him. And so he knows that all Jesus needs to do is just to speak. Speak, and his servant will be healed. Now, what is Jesus' response? Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, 
He said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus' reaction is emotional. He's amazed at the centurion, and more specifically, he's marveling at his faith. Faith. He turned to the crowd that he has been teaching and highlighted to them the centurion's faith. He turned to the crowd and taught them. And then the episode ended where we expected it to, before the centurion interrupted. Verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The one's dying servant is now healed. Jesus saved him from death, even without coming to him. Well, that's the full story. A very simple episode with a very simple plot. As you can see on the outline, part one, we were introduced to the centurion and his life-threatening predicament. Part two, we were then we, were, we can then see Jesus' response to this predicament. Part three, we witness an unexpected interruption from the centurion. And then part four, we see Jesus' response to the centurion's interruption, marveling at his faith. And part five, centurion's predicament is resolved, his servant is healed. A very simple predicament and then resolution plot. Centurion's dear servant is dying, Jesus healed him. Hooray! But we have to ask ourselves, isn't it? Why is the interruption there in the first place? What is the episode really trying to teach us today? What is the crux of the episode? What are we meant to take home and take to heart from this part of God's words? Well, I think there is a deeper predicament that has been resolved within this basic plot. And this deeper, this deeper predicament can be represented in a question like this. Well, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God, and Jesus has been performing lots of miracles, demonstrating his power and his authority as the Son of God. But the question is this, how are people responding to him? How should people be responding to him? What kind of response is fitting? Is it being astounded? being impressed, being deeply moved, being inspired by him? What kind of responses is fitting when you hear and you meet the Son of God? Well, we see in this episode the response that Jesus marveled at is faith. The right response towards the Son of God is faith. And you and I know faith is a very religious word, isn't it? It is also a very broad word as well. People today use it in different settings, in different ways. And so very often we have a wrong understanding when it comes to how the Bible itself uses the word faith. But here in our encounter with the centurion, we see faith on display. And we see Jesus personally endorsing this man's faith. So let's take a look again at the centurion and tease out further what is the essence of faith. Which I think is the main point of the passage. To give us clarity on how we are to respond rightly to Jesus, the Son of God. Firstly, we observe that the centurion trusts in Jesus' power and authority. 
He trusts in Jesus' power and authority. He trusts that his servant will be healed simply by Jesus' word. And this is because he trusts that God's authority is entrusted to Jesus, just as he has authority entrusted to him as a centurion. He knows that when Jesus spoke a word, it will be obeyed even from a distance. He said to Jesus, Say the word and let my servant be healed. Faith is on display here, and we see that faith is trusting awareness of God's power. Faith is a trusting awareness of God's power. Secondly, we observe that the centurion not only heard about Jesus, he heard about him and he appealed to Jesus for help. That is, he acted on what he heard about Jesus. He heard and he trusted. And that trust manifests itself as a dependent request, a request to help, for help from Jesus. As an army commander, he was both rich and he's powerful. He's paid probably 100 to 1,000 times more than a normal soldier. But he recognized that he can't do anything about his predicament. He can only dependently request Jesus to do what he can't do himself. So to have faith in Jesus is to dependently requesting Jesus to do what you can't. It is to admit that I can't, but he can. Thirdly and lastly, we observe that the centurion's attitude towards Jesus. He said, I'm not worthy. I did not presume to come to you. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord and he humbled himself before Jesus. Faith involves humility. Humility before Jesus. So in a nutshell, what kind of response is fitting for one who has heard about Jesus? Well, faith in Jesus. And the essence of faith as displayed in the centurion today is a combination of humility, dependent requests, and trusting awareness of God's power. So if you are like me, which some of you are, someone who have heard about Jesus, in fact, heard a lot about Jesus, the question for us this morning would be this. Do you marvel at what you have heard? Are you impressed with what you hear about Jesus? Or are you deeply moved by him? Or are you even inspired by the teaching of Jesus? What matters most is this. Do you have faith in him? Are you humbled before him? Do you trust him? Do you depend on him? For he is fitting. These are the fitting response to the Son of God. Most of us have been coming to SMAC and we have been listening and learning more and more and more about Jesus, about the Son of God. Are you trusting and relying on him more? Or are you still trusting and relying on your capability, your capable self. Our understanding of Jesus is meant to lead us to have faith in Him. Talking about faith, you and I know that to have faith in someone is a big ask, isn't it? It's a very big ask. That is to get ourselves to humbly trust someone, to depend on that particular person, 
requesting his help, relying on him, is not easy. Do you agree with that? Let's do a social experiment, a live one. I want all of you to take out your wallets, empty all its contents, notes and coins and credit cards, everything, into a bag that Sam Durasing will be holding at the end of the service and drop in your car keys as well and your house keys. Sam and I will be looking after them for you. Right, Sam? <laughs> While you enjoy your morning tea, just leave it with us and you come back and you get it when you're ready to go. Trust me, okay? <laughs> we will look after them. How many of you will do everything that I said? <laughs> Why not? Well, I guess it's because um, many of you haven't got to... Many of you, it's the first time that you know us. Many of you know us too well, probably. <laughs> right? Jesus is very different from us, isn't it? Jesus gives people ample, solid reasons to trust in him. Contrary to popular belief, believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is not blind faith. Faith in Jesus is founded on what Jesus reveals himself, has revealed himself to be. The centurion heard about Jesus, his teaching, and his healings. And so he has faith in him. Faith is built on our understanding of what God has revealed and shown and done among us. So what has God revealed about Jesus in this little episode that we have seen today? Well, in this episode, we see that Jesus is one who has real, authentic power and authority. He extends over space and distance and diseases. Jesus is not a bluff. He's not your household salesman. He's not giving empty talk. He's for real. He spoke and it was done. The servant was truly healed by his word. Now, who have you trusted in your life or who have you in the past so far dared to put your life to trust in? Would you not want to put your trust in, put your life in someone as powerful as Jesus, who has such great power and authority? And not only is Jesus powerful, he's willing. He's willing to exercise that power even on Gentiles. That's like you and me, non Jews. So you and me can confidently trust and rely on him knowing that we are actually on his radar. His heart goes out to us, and in fact, to anyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, who has faith in him. To have faith in Jesus is not blind faith. Let me draw to a close. We have seen in today's episode that the response that Jesus marveled at is faith. That is, the right response towards the Son of God is again faith. And faith was on display for us in the centurion. How does that look like? He was humble before Jesus, seeing himself rightly before him. He is Lord, I am unworthy. 
he depended on Jesus. He asked Jesus for help. And he had a trusting awareness of God's power and authority. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus has died. He rose again. He conquered sin. He defeated death. Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of his heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is God's righteous king, given authority and power over all the earth now, at this very moment. God is telling us today, believe that. Believe that. Believe that and live as though we believe that. Earlier in Luke, Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Bible tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sin. The passage today tells us that Believe that. Believe that. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And live as though we believe that. Well, it's a new year, isn't it? And people love New Year. People love New Year for different reasons. But I think one of the main reasons that we love New Year is because it offers a new start. It offers a new start. It's just like a reset button that we can put away the past and the old, and then we can start again. We make resolutions. Why do we like resolutions? Because we can make a fresh start. Well, if that is the essence of New Year, do you know that Christians actually celebrate New Year every day? That's the beauty of being a Christian. Because Christians are called to live a life of daily repentance. We can press the reset button, go to the foot of the cross, and start over. If you are like me, someone who has read this passage today, and is convicted again that I'm nowhere close to the centurion, I've not been trusting in Jesus, I've not been depending on him, I have not been having faith in him. Instead, I've been having faith in myself and my capability. I don't need anyone's help, not the church's help, not Jesus' help because I'm self-sustainable. And that reflects my zero faith in Christ. The good news is, for Christians, it's every day a new year. We can press the reset button, go back, to cross, go back to the cross, say sorry to God, rely on Him again, and ask Him to give us faith that we do not have. That is the essence of the new year. So if God's word has convicted you again this morning that you have not been faithful, you have been putting your trust, you have not been putting your trust in Jesus, well, let's repent. Right? Let me close in a prayer of repentance. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Father, we 
would like to say sorry to you for many times in our life. We are so independent. We have grown up in a society that tells us that we can make it, and it is a shame to ask for help. Asking for help is a sign of weakness. Help from the church, and even help from you, the Almighty God. But thanks be to you, Father, for the gospel, for you have turned the world upside down. Those who are needy will find forgiveness and hope in Christ. Christ came for the needy. Christ came for those who need him, who needs to be saved. And that is all of us, Father, for we have rebelled against you. We have sinned against you the moment we chose to run life our own ways. So, Father, we thank you for Christ's blood that washes clean and put, on, put us on a path of living in righteousness. Father, as we await the return of your Son, where all things will be put right and all sins will be gone, we ask for every one of us here that you will please uh, help us to repent daily and find forgiveness and hope in the cross. We pray for ourselves as a community, a community of needy people that we may be open and transparent towards one another of our neediness, and we may point one another to Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And as those who have been saved, we may now extend our hands to, to help one another, to support and to love one another. And we thank you, Father, for feeding us with your word this morning, and we ask that your, your word will be received in our hearts and give us understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.